Today we'll continue our sermon series for this fall on the Lord's Prayer. And we're trying, uh, as we study the Lord's Prayer, we're trying to resist the temptation to keep it just something cognitive, something in our head, and something uh, rather that we do and that we embody and that we get in our bones. I think that's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray instead of, as Sarah said last week, instead of having a PowerPoint clicker, getting through slides to show them what they needed to know. Um, So I want to invite Jeremiah to come and read our, our scripture that we'll focus on this morning from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my sons and daughters. So, last Sunday I showed up to church about 15 minutes late on purpose. You see, I was uh, pretty stiff legged. Uh, Some of you guys were there and you you probably judged me a little as I opted for the reverent kind of lean sit kneel during our prayers of the people instead of standing. I just finished running 13.1 miles in the Bull City Race Fest and decided to try to shower and get here uh, to be with you guys. I don't really consider myself a runner. You know, there's kind of a difference between someone who has run and someone who is a runner, and I'm kind of the former and not the latter. I've done a couple different races in the past, but there's something really particularly special about last Sunday's race. Uh, For one, the weather was just remarkable. Like, I had had no excuses, right? (laughs) Like, at least not from a weather standpoint. But, and I didn't really have the exact words of thanks or how I could put it together on the spot. It took me a few days, but it really seemed like a real gift that I was given. And and again, if you know me, you know that I'm rarely going to talk about having to run as a gift, right? It was a, it was a rare gift because it was, it, it was so normal and so mundane, this, this everyday route that we took. I, I think I have the route. It's like the craziest thing. I think, I think we crossed over Broad Street like five times, you know? So 
Uh, we trekked right through most of Durham's downtown neighborhoods. In other races I've been in, you're typically on like open roads, right? Like I, I ran at the Outer Banks and you, you just had to keep the ocean on one side of you, right? And that was success. Um, on paper, this race was really gritty and normal. Why would you want to be distracted? And again, that's my typical goal when I run is to be distracted by places that you normally are used to seeing and being around, by people and places you can't help but see. But because we strolled by people's front yards, we were greeted by kids eating cereal on their stoops and their PJs, or folks reading the paper and drinking their morning joe and probably wondering why we were doing what we were doing. <laughs> there were school-aged kids like set up with like little these little bathroom cups like with water and with Twizzlers and with pretzels. <laughs> I really appreciated the the Twizzlers. There were strangers rooting us on, and it was remarkable. There was a grace to it, a gift. The city that I've come to know and love and that's become my home with all its warts and with all its grit, even in a time like this that has so much animosity, so much vitriol, and there's stranger danger, and there's tension, and there's suspicion, this place was somehow transfigured. It was made new. It was as if even just for that beautiful, brisk fall morning, just temporarily, it was the same place but different. The old had for a couple hours passed away and the new had replaced it. To paraphrase a famed 80s theologian, Belinda Carlisle, Ooh, heaven was a place on earth for that two hours and five minutes, give or take a few seconds. It's this imagination, though, for God's rule and his renewal to touch down and to show up that fuels Jesus' prayer. Today, we'll, we focus on the, the specific petition that uh, liberation theologian Leonardo Boff calls the heart of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That these two realities of time and space, one which we know well and we have kind of a love-hate relationship with, earth, and the other which we hope for since its arrival means the end of all our problems, heaven, that they might intersect, that they might find one another and get married. It's just this image of marriage that we see when we flash forward to John the Revelator's vision of the future in Revelation 21. A new heaven and a new earth, the former having passed away. He says there's going to be no sea in that picture, and that might strike us as weird, but of course sea is shorthand for everything dark and scary and chaotic, and why would that have a place in this future? I wonder if that ancient imagination for the sea might in some way be similar to the way folks in Haiti might see the ocean, that seed and source of violence and uncontrollable destruction. 
In the new heavens and new earth, there will be no sea, for these waters have been tamed by the gentle voice of their creator. By the orchestrated flapping of those dove wings, which brings form and flourishing out of turmoil and tumult. This is recreation happening. So Jesus' instructions and his examples for his followers never stays just in, in mere fantasy. It's not just happy wishes or positive vibes. He, he goes there in this prayer. Even in his prayers, he goes there. He, he mixes politics and religion not that far into this famed prayer. He starts to talk about the kingdom. Not the kingdom which shows its face and its force around every corner. Not even the one that will eventually collude with the powerful religious elites to have him publicly executed when he keeps talking about the kingdom. They try to have him executed to warn his followers in not a too subtle way that this kingdom talk has consequences if you don't fall in line. Perhaps it's this sort of faithful prayer then that should permeate our political thinking during this crazy season. After all, faith, faith is a, cinema, a synonym for where we put our trust. Faith is more of a word having to do with knowing that a chair is there and being able to put your full weight in that chair than any sort of cognitive assent. In the psalmist, after all, says, some people trust, some people have faith in chariots, others in horses, but we trust in the Lord. So Jesus prays this political prayer, and when he does it, it automatically puts him, puts him at difference with prevailing political notions. He doesn't join in with his violent contemporaries, and, and Peter was one of them. Peter chopped off a guy's ear, if, 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 we don't, uh, if we read well, we remember that. He doesn't join with these violent contemporaries seeking to reclaim power and to return things to the way they are. But nor does he just push forward. Neither does he try to achieve some sort of Pax Romana, some sort of peace that is no peace. And he doesn't even choose that third option of disengaging, whatever that means, that, that, as if he could remove himself and plead the fifth. Jesus, in his ministry and in his prayer, very much seems to have a platform that he's pushing. I, I really wanted it this morning to embroider it on a hat. It, it would look, I think it would look something like this. It, it would say, make <laughs> creation new again. Very bigly. It'd be great. <clears throat> but I think this program to make creation new again starts with simple life reorienting prayers like the one Jesus prayed. A prayer for heaven and earth to make their peace through average people like you and I. For, for average people like you and I, when we drop our nets and we follow. Jesus, when we pray like him for that new Jerusalem to come down, that we might be 
oriented, not by ups and downs and ebbs and flows, but by the power of God who has chosen to send his son to be with us and to crack open the new creation by dying for us and being raised by the same Holy Spirit that fills us. This might cause us to do simple and revolutionary things like, I don't know, like love our neighbor as ourself. <laughs> like love them up close, not in the abstract, like, like eat with them, like talk to them, like talk to your neighbor, like host them or be hosted by them. If someone gives you an invitation to come over, never say no. <laughs> like caring about their kids, like being inconvenienced by your neighbors. Maybe that's, that's a great way to know if you're loving your neighbor, if, you, if they interrupt you and you don't like curse in your head about that interruption. Maybe loving your neighbor is being creative in the ways that you might serve them and invest in their flourishing, even and especially if they're not like you or if they don't think like you or if they just radically disagree with you or if maybe they even wish ill on you. This is the sort of eats with sinners, good news for the poor, enemy love, in which Jesus is like the ultimate policy wonk for. Like that's what he's pushing us towards. This prayer allows us to jump the tracks of how we're told by our politicians and media we're supposed to feel about the world. Do you ever just get that like gloom and fatigue? <laughs> Maybe this prayer is medicine for that. Since it, it, it leans us into hoping the right things at the right times and the right ways with the right amount. We no longer get hung up on narratives, on stories of decline, like this country's going to hell in a handbasket, or, or just stories of progress as if we could lay the bricks for the city of God. But it fixes our eyes, kind of on soft focus. We see two things at the same time, heaven and earth, where we fix our eyes on that, and we see the one, the God-man, who was heaven and earth intersecting. We're transfixed by Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And this allows us now to do something new, something generative. It allows us to criticize well, not with snark and not with despair, but to, to criticize and hold loosely our current events and our, and our politicians. And even while we look for a kingdom to come that is outside of ourselves, outside of even our best selves, right? We're re-aimed then not to look to the past, not to look towards the future, but to look for the new Jerusalem, the city of the new creation coming down to us as a gift. This is all possible because of the resurrected Jesus' kingdom has already begun. It's already popping up here and there. That's what those mustard seed groups are about, is the kingdom surprisingly like like a weed or a seed or, or yeast uh, popping up, infecting, inhabiting. I think of the words of the missionary and bishop, Leslie Newbegin, when they asked him, 
if, if he was optimistic or pessimistic. He had, he had been in India for all these years and he comes back and I asked him, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he says, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That was his answer. That's a mic drop from a bishop. But I think, I think we too then become not, not optimists, not pessimists. We, we, like I said, we jump the tracks from all of these narratives and we become kind of hopeful realists. We follow the first fruits of this new world. In that way, if we're hopeful realists, this prayer of Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then becomes this painfully prophetic prayer. And when I say prophetic, I don't mean like in those like cringe-worthy, like revelation-reading, rapture-ready ways that make us nervous, you know? Like, I mean prophetic in a way that bridges the gap between heaven and earth. In a way that only Jesus, who summed up all of the prophets in the law, could. You see, the role of a prophet, and, and when, I can tell you, when you go to divinity school, one of the first things they tell you in Old Testament class is, you think you want to be prophetic, but be careful about that office, because most prophets are killed by the people that they speak to, by their own people. <clears throat> but the office of a prophet, his role, his or her role is to, to pl speak plainly, to speak honestly and realistically about earth to critique the way things are. But to do it from within, to do it in a way that is energizing, that's encouraging, that propels God's people back towards God and God's will, who God is and what God wants for his creation. They offer a real assessment of pain and challenge along with a hopeful vision for an alternative future. We'll, we'll do a case study. You, you can read, you, it's kind of, you can pick, any, pick a prophet, any prophet, right? But we'll pick Isaiah because I always pick Isaiah. Take a prophet Isaiah case study and within the quote unquote covers of that Hebrew scripture, you get statements as seemingly disparate as this is chapter one. Hear you heavens and listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and I raised them and they turned against me. I hate your new moons and your festivals. They become a burden that I'm tired of bearing. When you extend your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even when you pray for a long time, I won't listen. Your hands are stained with blood. Wash, be clean, remove the ugly deeds from my sight. Put an end to such evil, learn to do good. But then, <laughs> just stay with the prophets long enough. And then you hear things like in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak with compassion to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her compulsory service has ended, that her penalty has been paid, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Raise it and don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Here is the Lord God coming with strength, with a triumphant arm, bringing his reward with him and his payment before him. 
Like a shepherd, God will tend the flock. He will gather lambs in his arms and lift them into his lap. This sounds a whole lot like the interactions of a caring and involved heavenly father, the same one we prayed to two weeks ago when we started. A father who guides, a father who shepherds and corrects and cares for his children. Even as an earthly dad, as a dad who's a really pale shadow of who God is and how he acts, I, I kind of get these dueling impulses that, that can show up in the same words to kids of challenge and comfort. Challenge and pain for that earthly part of them that doesn't align with who God made them be or to be or who God calls them to be. But comfort and hope for a future to be pulled into their present. The psalm from today's daily office puts it this way, from Psalm 103. Puts, puts both of these parts together in the same passage. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, very patient and full of faithful love. God won't always play the judge. He won't be angry forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin or repay us according to our wrongdoing. Because as high as heaven is above the earth, that's how large God's faithful love is for those who honor him. As far as east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sin from us. Like a parent feels compassion for their children, that's how the Lord feels compassion for those who honor him. When I'm the best version of an earthly father, there's so much hope in my criticism of my kids. There's hope that Noah and Titus and Emmett might realize a full future more than just the small future that they're making for themselves. More than they'll settle for on their own, more than they can even ask or can even imagine. Not my kingdom or their kingdom. <laughs> In that critique, that loving critique, it's, there's a, an implicit statement of not my will, not their will but God's kingdom and God's will on earth as it is in, in heaven. So a lot of you guys, uh, I was just talking with Kat and Brian, a lot of you guys have seen this poster that, that we've kind of commissioned and, and that we're using as a fundraiser for mission and ministry in Lakewood. I think there's a picture of it. And it says, in Durham as it is in heaven. We're selling this beautiful uh, poster to kind of try to put this prayer in context. But I got to admit, there's, there's a way to own this poster, a way to get it framed and to hang it on your wall that is exactly opposite of the intent of Jesus's prayer. Like I'm kind of haunted by that I'm going to do this wrong, that I'm going to look at that poster and, and just think good thoughts, think that, you know, Durham is currently heavenly in a way that's neither realistic nor hopeful about heaven. <laughs> that we're already there and that it's already now. That's kind of comfort without challenge or hope without pain. Every time I pass by that poster now, and there's one hanging in the office building, I try to use it as a check, like a, like a miniature prayer, like kind of a Cliff's notes of the Lord's Prayer, that I might see Durham with clear enough 
eyes and courageous enough feet then to recognize the dissonance and to go to those people in those places, to go inside my own heart and root out and minister to those things that are woefully out of place in a new heavens and a new earth. Those places of pain which groan for redemption and healing. That takes a lot of courage. You've got to be brave enough to do that. But also that, that I might hope, that I might hope well, that I might hope expansively and accurately for God's reign and rule to show up and that I might have ears to, see, to hear it and eyes to see it when it does. That this reign might preemptively arrive through the church, through you guys. Like, that's your job, right? Do your job. That you might be God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. That God might rise up and bring about justice and healing and make things new in these places and in these people that we're so used to. I want to kind of shift a little bit, and I, and I want to invite um, some friends to come up. So Gary and Sabrina and Alexandra and Stephanie, come on up. These guys got to share, and, and I, I, I'm going to ask them to share a really unique and cool experience from this past week. They got to be participants in something called a Durham Pilgrimage of Pain and Hope. And this is a program offered by Durham Cares and the Duke Center for Reconciliation. And I got to go on a version of this, of this uh, when I was in school. And uh, the purpose is, is to um, allow for spaces for people to, to listen well and to encounter, and then to open up uh, new places for repentance and reconciliation and, and ultimately transformation. Um, uh, to to kind of guide us, I'm going to stand on this other side just so I'm not taller than you guys. Uh, to kind of to kind of guide us, I, I would just be curious about two minutes apiece, if you guys would share maybe one thing from your weekend um, throughout traveling kind of all around Durham and up up to Stagville and and some of these landmarks. One thing that that was immensely hopeful for you. Um, and maybe one thing that was immensely painful uh, for you. And uh, ahead of time, I, I'd ask you guys to, to use kind of a filter in your head of this um, on earth as it is in heaven phrase. So you, you, can, you can approach this by talking about things, uh, ways that, that you saw Durham not as it is in heaven or ways that you're hopeful that that, that, that might come to be a more, uh, a more real reality for us. So... She's passing the mic. Um, go for well, it. Well, I think, I believe you have talked already. To yeah, go. yeah, go for Let it. Let me go last because they have actually organized themselves, I think. Well, we'll so see. let me, let Stephanie go first. Yeah. Okay, I'll start. Um, so on the pilgrimage, I learned more about the history of um, 147, which I've been driving on for nine years now, um, and about Black Wall Street. And I would say this is a place where I experienced immense um, pain um, and even some despair over the history there. Um, and so when I moved to North Carolina nine years ago, I noticed that 147 seemed to kind of segregate Durham. 
um, and it seemed like um, it seemed like a really sad thing, but I didn't understand why that was. And so over the weekend, I learned more um, about how Block Wall Street on Paris Street in downtown had been a place of flourishing for African American people, for African American business people. Um, and that the Haytai community had also been a place of flourishing for African-American people. Um, but when 147 was built in the 60s, um, during a process of urban renewal, um, which was happening in many cities in the US, um, it ended up being built over those places of flourishing um, for black Americans in Durham. Um, and that was very destructive for the community. Um, and at the same time, if you look at the curve of 147, it's built around places um, of wealth that belong mostly to white people. And so Duke University um, and the Liggett Myers um, Tobacco Company. Um, and Duke is the reason that I came to Durham. Um, and so that, that was very uh, painful to see. Um, on the hopeful side, um, I learned a lot about the Hispanic and Latino community that I hadn't known before. And so I've driven past the um, Latin, Latino credit union many times over by the downtown YMCA, um, where I like to work out. And um, I'd always kind of wondered why would there need to be a Latino credit union, but I didn't give it much more thought than that. And so we learned um, that Durham had been a haven for immigrants in the 90s and was seen, um, seen as a place um, where immigrants could come that had been living on the West Coast and closer to the Mexican border and be safer um, from the possibility of deportation. Um, but when they came here, they didn't have access to the uh, US banking system because of the language barrier and a lack of knowledge for how it worked. And so the Latino Credit Union was started as a response to that. Um, and it became a place um, for education. It also became a place where um, the immigrant workers could store their money instead of carrying it on them um, and being targets for uh, theft and crime. Um, and so the Latino Credit Union became a model for similar credit unions throughout the US. Um, and I saw real hope in that. And we heard that during the housing crisis in 2008, that the Latino Credit Union didn't foreclose on a single house. And I thought that was amazing. And it was really because of the relationships, um, because they were willing to work with people and because they really prioritized keeping people in their homes. That's great, thank you, Stephanie. Right. I learned quite a few things, and because oh, I always had a concept at first that it wasn't much to Durham. I didn't know anything about them outside of Duke and little things that I had heard. And even when I came here and started living here for years and everything, I didn't experience nothing great, you know, that stood out among Durham, I would say. But this past weekend, I had a chance to experience some pain from actually other people's situations as you touched on, how Durham, the South, and minorities and different people had to live and adjust and adapt, how certain things you know, were restricted or denied or whatever. And it still was one thing that stuck out to me. It was people back then, I myself now this time, and hopefully children and people for the future should have that pilgrimage or that journey where you're allowed to learn about God, connect yourself with God in Christ, and going back to those people in hardships, immigrants, myself, and experiences people had that was negative and everything, some people always still manage to have a hope of God. And that's the only 
thing. Even though you could take away a million other things from certain people, it was apparent that they couldn't take that out of their hearts. And so that sort of transformed them to adjust and live better, to be the people they were under the situations they were under because, I would say, of their hope, their faith, and their belief. That is also what changed my perception for a lot of things about Durham. I didn't know it had all the places and people and was as famous for the things that it is, but this particular church and my church family and this group has changed my outlook and my hope in my life and made it better, more realistic, and I'm a product and a part of Durham right now, so that um, phrase that he had as in Durham as it is in heaven, I like to apply that and think that, they like say, different groups and churches and things that's here and there spread out and everything. That has to be applied to the people's hope and possibly and hopefully one day, it's a long journey or stretch down, but things, are, the Bible, things are gonna be in Durham and everywhere as they are in heaven, yeah. eventually. And just have to wait because God knows all things. He knows what's best and we go through trials and hardships and everything, but your faith, belief, and hope and connection to him should make everything else secondary. And uh, I say I learned that uh, about the businesses with the Latinos and certain businesses that the black people had and things, and that was quite interesting to me. And some of the, uh, well, some, some of the businesses that some of them had, they don't no longer have the same businesses, but it was formed in, it made them progress, and they had feelings, you know, but it was something that brought them through that too, and I'll say their hope and concern and connection and faith and belief and all that brought them to the point of accepting where they at, who they are, why things are the way they are, and the belief and hope that it's gonna get better as it goes on. And that's pretty Th much. Thanks, Gary. Um, I'm Sabrina. I wanted to first thank um, Reverend Chris for making this possibility for us to go and at least enlightening us on that because we did get a lot out of it. So I do appreciate that. And Oak Church, as I know, you know, we were sent out as part of y'all. I appreciate that. And welcome to all the new ones today. Um, I'm one of those that's still just not sure about everything because I have been born and raised in Durham. I've seen the ebbs and flows of Durham. Um, a lot of the places that we went on the journey, some I had been to before, but I obviously learned a lot more, you know, going this time. Um, the Haytai Center has always been a heartbreaker for me um, because I just remember that far back. And I can remember when my parents talked about walking to up and down East Durham with no problems. And, you know, so I'm, the pastor kind of put me on the point. He's like, okay, what about hope? And I think everybody at the table kind of did the same thing because I was drawn with the hope piece. And what my hope piece came out to be was basically all of us that were sitting at the table, making the journey, making the journey happen. Um, we're being taped by leads and you know just making it happen because that's I think is where my hope is going to be that I don't feel like I'm banging my head against a wall by myself which sometimes I feel like that way but I guess it's normal for most of us but I know here at Oak Church 
I'm not the one banging my head. <laughs> it's, well, there's a lot of us here that are just, we want to help, we want to welcome, and more than anything, we want to love. And I really think that that's where the reconciliation comes into the part of hope and reconciliation in Durham. And it was, as he said, Durham Cares had a, had a big part of that. Can, can you share about uh, Polly Murray home oh. a little bit? You don't have to if you don't want to. I can. Okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, it's really great. Okay. So, <laughs> many years ago, I want to say 98, 99, 2000, <laughs> I was staying in a house with some friends that, um, far as I knew, they were staying there to keep it up. And... I mean, that's kind of how the homeless community goes, and, you know, that's kind of, you know, my little forte, and why I'm making sure I go back to school so I can make that difference. But we walk up, and they point, and I walk in the yard, and I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and they're like, what? And, of course, you know, Stephanie over here is like, you can't just do that and not tell us. <laughs> and I'm like, she does this all the time to me and doesn't tell me, so. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just me. But <laughs> it was the Polly Marie house that we're staying in, and I'm like, what? And we had no idea. And there were a lot of us in that home because generally you want to have, you need your homeless community because, you know, some people say, oh, they stay by themselves when they're homeless, and that's fine if it works for them, but you're kind of better off in a unit because then you've got other people watching you and you're not just lost. Everybody's got lost together, so, you know, we're kind of together, but, you know, and I was like, yeah, the back of the house went like 10 feet from the graveyard. And they were like, no, it didn't. It's not that close to it. So of course me, I had to go walk back there and they took off the back part of the house and the chimney still stands and it's probably like eight feet from the graveyard. But I felt, um, I mean, it, to me, it's still humorous um, because Polly Murray, with everything that she did and everything, you know, prior to that happening, you know, she was she's still helping. She's still yeah. doing things. And, of course, to have it fixed up as a historic home, and it was really, really run down at the time, and, we, you know, we did some work, but they have it up and going. Yeah, and just this week they announced that it, it, it did uh, land on the historic National Historic Register. So, you, you, Sabrina, you lived in a very historic home. So, uh, and, and really cool to, to see the ways uh, in which that, that place remains and is, is being renewed. So, yeah, thanks. I can pretty much tell you step by step. <laughs> but, yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. My name is Alexandra Harper, and... Um, it really was a sense of pilgrimage throughout these past couple of weeks in the sense that um, just what really compelled me to do this is um, uh, what I've been trying to do with Culture Care, um, a ministry of you, the whole connection is that you can't love a place at a distance. You can't love a people at a distance. And that means working together, that means creating together. And, but you have to actually go <laughs> to the places. And that's really hard um, because we're people of instant like information um, and that needs no ex explanation on that. And 
So this idea of pilgrimage is that it's slow, it's not a race, and it's something that is slowly being unveiled as an experience in which the way that you're processing things and the way that... So the whole thing to me was just really um, powerful because, like um, others have shared, we met great storytellers, and they're great storytellers because they have stories to share that are rooted in the dignity of being an image bearer and loving God first and foremost. And that's why they could stand and have these kind of testimonies because their hope wasn't in like, if I teach this long enough, people will get it. It was, I do this and I'm compelled to do this because God has called me to do this. And because there, it was that hopeful realist. And when we talk about um, hope, it's not something, there's some people say, I hope and I have, I fa- have faith that one day it will be better. But if we act that way at a distance, then that's not a true trust. That's not a true faith. And some, you know, what Christ says, you know, didn't we say, Lord, Lord, and I never knew you. You have to move. You have to put one foot in front of the other and love people. And to do that means walking the streets. And so just walking around downtown Durham in a contemplative manner, walking with people and praying these city streets together, it became a sacred act. Um, and I felt more um, in light with who God has called me to be, and I'm sure the rest have as well. So just that idea of being a hopeful realist, knowing that um, I was just thinking why Chris was talking about the prophet Haggai. Um, I think it's Haggai, I'm pretty sure. And he's, he's sent to go and rebuild the temple. And he is just gutted because it's been destroyed again. And um, he goes back and they do the work and he's grieving and the older people are grieving. All this work is being done, but the elders, the elders are grieving because they knew what the temple had looked like before, (laughs) before the destruction. And God said to him, just be strong and do the work. And it is not up to you whether or not you see glory on everything. You're just called to be faithful. And I kept thinking about that in light with just what is a hopeful realist? It's someone saying that thy kingdom come. And, and meanwhile, we do the work and that God shows up in our faithfulness and in that presence. So just that whole thing of these testimonies from the storytellers that we met, knowing that they could only do that because... God had called them to do this peacefully and with beauty and with sacrifice. All of them had to sacrifice. And it was not, we're getting the highlights, but they walked through it. And um, I think we, one, I will point out one thing. One of the business leaders at the Haytai Center said to us um, that I really appreciated um, and also felt more of a burden because sometimes, especially as a white person, I, I can think, well, the black community is coming up stronger, and this is good, you know, see them making these things. But he said, we could not have done this alone. You can't do things in isolation. And that's not actually, as a Christian, that we're not called to enact these patterns of segregation. You know, the whole, we eat together so that we can know each other. And so how is it that we can place ourselves in community so that um, we can know our neighbors and that when we are called to be that um, vanguard, to be that safeguard, and a brother or a sister, in the, 
when injustice is done. That place is already there and that trust is already there. So this whole thing was um, beautiful. And so thank you all for your prayers and help in this. Thank you, guys. Um, if you're interested in hearing more stories, I'm sure these guys would, would gladly entertain you during um, our potluck meal together. And that's what that time's for. Also, um, uh, I'm going to call you out, Reynolds. But R Reynolds is the executive director of Durham Cares. And, and he's he was with, our fearless leader. And he, yeah. He's here with his wife, Caitlin. And, the only four there, so he, and I, think, I think Reynolds would be glad to answer any questions or, or any uh, future interest in, in upcoming uh, experiences like this or other things that Durham Cares is involved in. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let me pray, guys. Father, we thank you uh, for uh, your kingdom and your will. Uh, we thank you that it's not, uh, neither of those things are um, esoteric or far away, but that they're at hand. Um, that uh, when um, Jesus was asked who his uh, family is, he he, he didn't flinch and said his family, his brothers and sisters and his mothers are those that do the will of his father. Um, and so we pray, Lord, that you continue to align us with that will, that desire to see um, this, this earth and these earthen vessels of bodies um, more clearly uh, reflect and um, show your glory. Uh, we, we pray that you give us um, keen eyes and ears and imaginations to see and hear and perceive the ways that you're at work um, around us, that, that you're at work so close to us and the things that we take for granted. Uh, Father, renew us. Renew each and every one of us. Um, put a little more heaven into each and every one of us and, and do that together as well. Uh, we thank you, Lord. We, we long um, for your arrival, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.